there. Welcome, everybody. My name is Bonnie Violet. And in case you don't know where you are, you are at Dragon Spirituality. Uh, this is our seventh episode tonight. Our guest will be Peaches Christ. Peaches Christ is a filmmaker and cult leader living in San Francisco. Her infamous movie events are self-produced at the Castro Theater and regularly draw over a thousand attendees to each new production before they tour. Events have featured special guest stars, John Waters, Cloris Leachman, Bruce Campbell, Barry Boswich, Pam Greer, Elvira, and more. Peaches is the alter ego of Joshua Grinnell, the writer and director of the feature film, All About Evil, the award-winning dark comedy, dark comedy <laughs> gore film stars Natasha Lyon, Thomas Decker, Cassandra Peterson, Mink Stoll, and Peaches Christ herself. Peaches Christ has been featured in the films Milk, I Am Divine, Diary of a Teenage Girl, Mansfield 6667, Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, You Don't Know Me, and more. This is Peaches Christ. Hi, Peaches. Hi. How's it going? Oh, I'm doing well, you know, hanging in there. How are you? I'm doing well as well. Uh, well as well. Um, that was a great uh, video. Thanks for sharing it with us. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. It's, um, well, it was a trailer for the Frameline Film Festival. Every year they, they uh, commission someone to do a new trailer for the festival. And then the trailer runs before like every movie they screen. So it runs hundreds of times at the Castro Theater and the Roxy and theaters in the East Bay. And I have like been a huge fan and supporter of the Frameline Film Festival since I moved here to San Francisco. And so when they asked me to do it, I was like, oh my God, it's, it's gotta be great. So, you know, I uh, worked my ass off on writing and directing and then performing in that um, trailer. And it, and it was one of those things where no one had done a, a Wizard of Oz parody, you know? So I, I, you know, decided that would be the best way to celebrate queer film. Yeah, no, definitely. It's fantastic. And you, and you did it all. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I got to throw water in Heclina's face repeatedly. I so, saw you know, that. that was, it made it, the whole thing was, you know, kind of, I mean, I didn't get paid to make that trailer, but that moment was payment enough. Definitely payment enough. <laughs> um, I want to yeah, say thank you for um, being here tonight. Um, I guess one of the things that we'll do just to get started is kind of, um, I like to start off with like, I guess, little peaches or life before peaches, um, uh -huh. to know, kind of like, uh, tell us a little bit about kind of where you grew up and, um, how it was growing up. So I grew up in, uh, Annapolis, Maryland, um, and Annapolis is sort of in between DC and Baltimore, uh, and it's the Naval, it's where the Naval Academy is located, you know, so it's, it's historic, it's, um, boring, if you ask me, as a kid, I love it now, like, I love going back and visiting, and it feels like home, but of course, as a kid growing up who wanted to be like, <laughs> I wanted to live in New York City, you know, I wanted to be where the excitement was, you know, Annapolis was not that, and I grew up in the suburbs of Annapolis, so like in a suburban neighborhood, you know, and went to Catholic school and, uh, you know, grew up going to church. And, you know, as a kid, I mean, before discovering drag even, I was always, in many ways, the weirdo that I am 
uh, today. Like I was a kid who was unapologetically into horror movies and anything spooky. I was obsessed with Elvira. You know, I was um, a weirdo kid um, and definitely a black sheep, but also a um, kind of a go-getter. So, you know, I would put on haunted houses in the neighborhood. I used to write and direct and um, audition kids to be in these haunted, you know, attractions. And um, I would write and direct little plays and then, you know, I was in children's theater workshops and stuff like that. So, you know, pre-drag Peaches was, um, I mean, I was such a weirdo that like I would I would get my parents to buy me as much horror makeup and like Halloween makeup as I, as I could convince them to buy. And then I would hoard it. And year round, I would put myself in makeup and costumes and, you know, dress up in the summertime. And, you know, so, I mean, it, I was I was kind of always a little drag queen. Always. Yeah. So when did that start for you? What age? I mean, as long as as young as I can remember, because when I was a kid, so in Annapolis, you know, we um, lived there uh, full time, basically. And in the summers, we had a place at the beach. And so we would go down to Ocean City, Maryland, um, which is a a very like traditional East Coast beach resort town. And I was obsessed with Ocean City. I loved going down to the ocean. And uh, I felt like, in fact, I wanted to be there as much as I could. And so at some point, my parents actually let me stay there for the entire summer. I would spend half the summer with my grandparents and half with my parents. But part of my obsession was over the haunted houses that were there. Uh, and from a young age, like seven, eight, nine years old, I would go down and sit and stare at this haunted house called Morbid Manor and just watch it, you know, and then watch all the kids. And so like the kids, the teenagers that worked there knew who I was. And and I would get caught like dressing up and then going, buying a ticket and like hiding in the haunted attractions right. and scaring people. Uh-huh. <laughs> so this is, I mean, like very young age, you know, like, you know, like really young before I was 10, I was doing this shit <laughs> too old for them to hire you. Huh? <laughs> right. Exactly. Too young. Too young. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so you had said that you went to uh, Catholic school. How was that for you? Well, I mean, growing up, you know, um, I loved a lot of what it was all about. I loved the sort of the, 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 all the, um, sort of drag of it, you know, like the, I loved the vestments and the, the sort of the pageantry of nuns and priests. And, you know, as a kid, I mean, of course I bought into it, you know, I was, I was brainwashed because I, you know, I, I was brought up in this environment. And so I believed it all, you know, I literally believed, you know, as a kid that I was eating the body of Jesus, you know, that, that they had turned this wafer into the flesh of Jesus Christ. And, and, you know, that I was drinking his blood. I mean, think about how that, I mean, that's what they believe, you know? And um, I bought into it until, you know, I I was around in in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I started to ask questions. And um, that wasn't always like encouraged at my Catholic school, right? So one of the big sacraments um, is confirmation. When you're in eighth grade, confirmation is this Catholic sacrament where, you know, Basically, most Catholic kids just do it because their parents tell them to. And you're confirming that you're going to be like an adult member of the Catholic Church. But me being the questioning um, sort of, you know, uh, I guess 
drama queen that I am, and, and also just really, you know, asking questions, uh, decided that I wasn't sure I wanted to be Catholic. So therefore, how could I be confirmed? And, uh, and that created a big controversy uh, with Sister Marta, my, the teacher at the time. And I did not get confirmed. And my parents uh, supported that. Um, but, you know, kind of, that's where things kind of turned shitty because it's where the veil of uh, a flawlessness started to, like, drop away from the Catholic Church. And it's where, for me, as a, as a kid going to Catholic school, I really started to question everything. So all through high school, I was a bit of a, you know, a rebel when it came to the religious stuff. Gotcha. So you still went to the school and graduated from there? Yeah, that's where I graduated from St. Mary's High School in Annapolis, Maryland. And, you know, I had lots of great friends and, you know, and some of some of that was a great education. But, you know, a lot of it, um, especially the religious hypocrisy, you know, really drove me nuts, you know, so um, I was, I was, you know, constantly calling out things, you know, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a upper middle class private school. So there were a lot of Heathers, you know, a lot of jock, you know, assholes. And then I was kind of an asshole, you know, I was kind of a goth, um, you know, you know, pissed off uh, closeted queer kid who, you know, in many ways, you know, was fine with bullying the popular kids, you know, outsmarting them or, um, you know, being mean to them and, you know, having a group of friends, um, a large group of sort of alternative friends who were the drama queers. Um, you know, I, um, look back on it now and I'm like, Oh, I was kind of a jerk too. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't just them. You know, I actually used them in in many ways to sort of, (laughs) you know, exercise revenge. Justify the behavior a little. Yes, for <laughs> sure. We all were jerks when we were young. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so after you graduated, what was next? Then I went to college and I thought I was going to go to New York at that time, but uh, I just could not afford NYU. My father actually is a CPA. He's retired now. But at the time, he uh, sat down and showed me what my student loans uh, would look like if I went to NYU to study film production. So I ended up getting into Penn State, which was my backup school. And they had a film program at Penn State where I could actually um, shoot on film and edit film and use flatbeds and, and, and make a 16 millimeter you know, film. And so that was really important to me. So I ended up going to Penn State, which was completely the opposite of what I thought I wanted. Um, but in fact, it ended up being a great thing for me because I was able to be a much bigger fish there where there weren't very many openly queer film students. Actually, I was the only one, you know, and and there was no drag scene. So we kind of made it up, you know, and had house parties. And, you know, I started doing drag when I was in college and, you know, I made kind of outrageous, you know, short films. And, um, and, and I think if I had gone to NYU, I would have been maybe one of... <laughs> Oh, her, you know, like just an, another queen making uh, a crazy movie or whatever. Right. Uh, we do have a question from uh, from the audience. Gerard Brule was asking, what inspires you to keep going during those times? Like when you tell people who you are and they're scared, what kind of. You know, I've always kind of I, I guess felt like I've thrived um through adversity. And I'm even kind of trying to like now apply that to this new situation we're all in where I'm like, Oh my God, my whole life is theater and performing and this and that, and it's all been taken away. And it's like, what can we do and how can we be creative? And I guess in a way I haven't known what it's like to not have um, 
you know, that kind of adversity. So, I mean, in a way, I, I think there's ways to use it, you know, to your advantage. And so when people, you know, are shitty, um, maybe, maybe there's a, I don't know. I mean, it, it's just natural in a way for, I think a lot of us as queer people to take what once hurt us. I mean, that's what drag is in a way, right? Something that once hurt us, like, you're not supposed to be like a girl, you know, right. you don't be a sissy, but look at me now, you know? I'll show you. You want to yeah. see sissy? I'll show you sissy. Right. <laughs> and so, um, so did when did did peaches come about in co- when you were in college or? Yes. So I was um, I was actually making my senior thesis film, Jizz Mopper, and uh, Jizz Mopper uh, had a character in it who was a drag character, and um, I was directing the movie and I co-written the movie with my friend Hal and the character um, of, of this, this drag character in the movie wasn't supposed to be Peaches. It was actually supposed to be um, performed by a Latino uh, man who was playing this character, uh, Coco Nevada. And when um, my friend um, just wasn't showing up to play the role and I was getting in trouble in film class, there weren't many people to step in. Like nobody wanted to play a drag queen, you know, in central Pennsylvania at that time, like drag was just, you know, um, taboo. And so I ended up stepping in to play the part, which, you know, I make it sound like, you know, oh, I saved the day. But in retrospect, now I'm like, I bet I had eyes on playing that, you know, part the whole time, you know. Um, So I ended up being the character and we changed the character's name to Peaches. And then I wanted to call the character Peaches Christ. uh, Mm -hmm. But the cinematographer my friend Eric who was very very Christian begged me not to do it because he was like oh my god my parents are already dying I'm shooting in a porno store like please for the love of god do not call yourself Peaches Christ so in the movie Jizz Mopper um my drag name is Peaches Nevada and then of course when I got on the that plane to San Francisco uh the paperwork was filed (laughs) Peaches Christ was born the official name change took, yes. took into effect. Um, and so, um, so Yali, the universe was like, here you go, do, do drag. And so um, how, how was your first drag experience? How was that for you? Uh, well, it's awkward. And, you know, I think, you know, I was, just, I was a booger. And um, I think all great drag queens start as little baby boogers. And, you know, you're, you're learning and you're, you're experimenting and you're trying different things. And, you know, um, I think that, especially back then, you know, there was no, um, there was no book on how to do drag. There was no sort of, um, there was no internet. There was no, there, you know, drag just wasn't very popular. So, you know, my introduction to drag was through the discovery of John Waters and Divine, you know, growing up in Maryland, you know, discovering Divine really changed my life. So clearly, you know, I've been influenced a lot by John Waters and Divine and, you know, that, um, that, that inspiration is, is enormous as well as the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So my, my sort of entrance into the drag or even my knowledge of drag all came from those movies, the Divine movies and Frankenfurter. And so, you know, my earliest drag is me in front of a camera, you know, in front of a 16 millimeter camera and it's forever, you know, now caught on film in this movie, Jizz Mopper. Um, and of course I look 
at that movie now and I cringe and think it's, you know, unwatchable. And, um, you know, I, I and very few people have seen it, you know, because uh, I've kept it very close. <laughs> Where can we watch it? <laughs> you can't. Can't watch it. <laughs> uh, but I, I actually think that that's going to change very soon. I mean, especially during like a global pandemic and the older you get and, you know, the less I take, you know, myself seriously, the more I just, I don't care about any of that stuff anymore. And I actually look back on all of that stuff and really, really enjoy it. Um, So I think we'll put it online soon. You know, part of it's that I don't actually solely own it myself. It's, it's, it's a, it was a student thesis film and four of us graduated and four of us paid for it. So we actually share ownership over it. And so part of my um, reluctance to do anything with the movie is that one of those members from our film school, I don't know where she is. I need to find her. And I have not been able to track her down because I'd like for the four of us to be able to like present it together, you know, versus me just putting it out there. Cause really it's, it's four different people's movie. It's not just mine. Yeah, it'd be great to do like a Q&A with y'all. Yeah, I think people, I, I really, you know, the movie itself, I'm actually quite proud of. When it came out at, at Penn State, it played in the film festival and it won the um, audience award for best film. So, you know, I, I mean, we made a good movie. It's just that Peaches in it, I mean, some of my looks, and I know what, you know, some drag queen at home is saying, you know, well, she still, you know, looks shitty. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, some of these looks, woo. I mean, we are talking woof, you know. Right. Like you said, we got to start somewhere. Yeah. So, so right after right after that, you moved out to San Francisco? I did. I, I basically graduated from Penn State and I had met John Waters while I was at Penn State. And John had actually told me and uh, my friend Martini about the Coquettes and I just couldn't believe that there was this hippie group of drag performers that Divine and Mink Stoll and John all were friends with and performed with that lived in San Francisco in the late 60s, early 70s, who did drag shows before movies, you know, in a movie theater, and that they made short films. This blew my mind, you know. I knew about Andy Warhol and the Factory Girls and all of that, but I had not heard of the Coquettes. It was before the documentary came out. And John also told me about Canyon Cinema and the Kuchar Brothers and the underground film scene that existed here. So uh, Martini and I, my my old sidekick, Martini, uh, she and I, we were actually very close friends, Michael and I, and we bought, I mean, seriously, like one-way plane tickets. So we had no job, no place to live. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, I don't know what we were thinking, you know, and we literally got on a plane with one-way plane tickets and moved to San Francisco and like got here and just kind of like, we had no money. I mean, we thought we had money cause we had graduation money. But when I look at it now, I'm like, we had no money. We had like a couple weeks worth of um, SRO hotel. I mean, we lived in a, a SRO hotel room until we could get on our feet. Right. Isn't that how all of us get to San Francisco? <laughs> I think it is. That's why when, you know, young people reach out to me now, I'm like, you know, I would not recommend it. Uh, but here's what I did and you're young and you're, you're resilient. So why, you know, the best thing you can do is just get here and figure it out. Yeah. I mean, I think if your goal is just to live in San Francisco, I moved out here three years ago and that was my goal was just to live here. Uh, So where I lived, what job I took, like all that stuff didn't matter. You know, it was like, I I just want to live here. So I'll do whatever. I mean, you moved here at the height of it. I mean, it's seeming impossible because 
you know, honey, when I moved here, you could, I mean, we were like working, I, I, you know, coffee shop jobs. And, you know, I was, you know, assistant manager of an art house movie theater. And not only could we pay the rent, we could pay the rent and then some, and then, you know, spend money on drag because none of us were making money doing drag, you know? So those days are so long gone. I mean, when I moved here, you know, Hecklina was working at like Tower Video and at the Stud Bar, you know, when she started, you know, Tranny Shack and everything. It's like all all that time I realized we thought we had it hard. And then I look at the way you guys <laughs> have it now and I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know. I don't know how they do it, you know, working yeah. five jobs and, you know, paying outrageous rent and sharing bedrooms, you know. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty well. It's not like anything I've ever ever lived before, but I'm so glad I landed here. Good. That's good. <laughs> when, so, um, so I guess, so then, then you met up with Heclina and all started, was Heclina doing drag at that time as well or? Unfortunately, yes. So <laughs> she had, uh, she had already been um, performing um, as Heclina for a while. In fact, uh, a friend of ours who had moved here um, from Penn State the year before was sending us like the gay rags from the Castro. And, you know, they were there was one called Odyssey at the time and they were sending us Odyssey magazines. And so we would get these magazines and this club, this, you know, nightclub tranny shack had popped up in the Odyssey magazine. And I remember seeing Heclina's face and Pippi Lovestocking's face in this cheap little ad. And it said like dollar beer, $5 cover, you know, drag show at midnight, new nightclub. And they started that nightclub in like March and Martini and I and our other friend Selma Goods got here at about in May. And so we started going to the stud every Tuesday night at, at midnight. Um, you know, and back then, you know, uh, the word tranny shack was really an inclusive um, term. Like that club was where everyone went, you know, all the weirdos, you know, I, I mean, there were transvestite uh, straight men with their wives, you know, at that club, trans women, non-binary folks, drag performers, you know, like it was sort of the, uh, it was, it was the alternative strange place to go. I mean, it would fill up on a Tuesday night at midnight, you know? And so that's where I met all of my friends and creative, you know, collaborators and, you know, got so much inspiration from watching, you know, these punk rock insane, you know, performers do their thing. Right. And so um, how did you, I know you mentioned you wanted Peaches Christ. You want to tell us a little bit why you chose that name? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I carried that Catholic uh, anger, you know, with me through um, young adulthood. And, um, you know, I think that part of me did feel like, you know, a little betrayed by this church that had, um, you know, one, at one time been this thing that was part of my life. And, you know, I'd gone to this school and then to learn that, you know, this, this religion is uh, teaching that people like me um, were sinners and, um, you know, in the hypocrisy of it all, because I knew, you know, what these priests were and, you know, what a lot of the nuns were. And I remember a nun keeping me after class once and her berating me because she said I had too many friends that were girls and I was never going to be a normal man. You know, I remember her, you know, really laying into me after uh, a class once. And it was super homophobic. I mean, it wasn't even veiled. It was like you're gay and you need to be more normal and stop hanging out with all these girlfriends of yours. Cause you're acting like a girl and cut it out. I mean, basically that's what she said. And 
I don't know. I always knew it was wrong. Like, luckily, I always knew they were wrong. And so I, I carried a lot of anger at the hurt they had caused me. And so in a way, making light of the name Christ for me um, was about kind of um, turning that pain into something else. I also loved that it was gothic and gory. I mean, images of Christ are really horrific. And I liked sort of the religious iconography of it all. And then of course I created a, a show called Midnight Mass. Mm-hmm. So it all kind of tied together. And I loved the idea of being sort of a cult uh, leader or, you know, I love, I still love the ideas of cults and religion and, you know, stuff like that, but as entertainment. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah I, so, it, yeah, so it was just kind of like reclaiming all that. For me, it was, you know, it really was. And um, I remember when, you know, we first did Midnight Mass at the Bridge Theater back in 1998. And, um, and the League of Catholic Voters actually sent the company Landmark Theaters, who was the, 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 the cinema that was allowing us to do the show, um, they sent them a uh, boycott letter, a threat, you know, um, and, and Landmark sat me down and they said, you know, just so you know, you've been threatened with these protests and we as a company need to make a decision. Um, but what was so cool about Landmark, and I remember the, I mean, the guy that actually gave me the green light, I mean, he wore a suit, you know, and I was young, I was like 23. I was so nervous that they were going to pull the plug on this show that I wanted, but they said, you know, we built this company screening movies like Eraserhead and Pink Flamingos, and it would be hypocritical of us as an art house, you know, an independent cinema, not to let you do this thing. But they wanted me to know that they were taking a risk. And sure enough, you know, we had protesters that first week or two. And then ever since then, I've barely been protested. And I, I, I really miss it. I wish. I loved it. I loved that I was pissing off Catholics. That's what it's all about, right? <laughs> I did. I loved it. I still stand by it. So, you know, I don't want to piss off people that I'm, um, you know, a, a groups of people that I'm not a part of, but this was a group of people I was a part of. So I didn't, you know, it didn't bother me that they, they were pissed off. Yeah. I feel like a lot of queer folks have had that experience in like spiritual spaces where they maybe once loved it, felt really great. And then all of a sudden it, it like turned against us in some way. Yeah, it's very painful. I mean, I think, you know, I think, and I have a lot of friends who've grown up Mormon and a lot of friends who've grown up Baptist. And, you know, and I think that these, um, there are differences, of course. And especially what's interesting is the differences in coming out and sort of that's where the Catholic hypocrisy really drives me nuts because, I mean, I had many friends. In fact, my first ever boyfriend uh, who, who was disowned after being sent to conversion therapy, you know, so I, th- th- this is not, you know, th- th- there was a lot of abuse going on, you know, in the name of Christ and the church. Gotcha. And so, so do you have uh, any sort of spiritual, ex- like spiritual? Do you have? Do you ide- do you identify as a spiritual person now? Or well, I do, and it's funny because it took me a while to get there. So I think part of becoming Peaches Christ and doing Midnight Mass and at the time was sort of this idea, I think in my mind, I was a, I was a reluctant atheist. You know, it was the e- easiest way for me to, um, to sort of justify, you know, what I was doing was to sort of say like, it's all bullshit, you know, and, and I'm a fucking atheist and fuck you. And, you know, I was very, very angry. And 
you know, uh, a lot of the work was, was, you know, like a lot of my entertainment was about being um, caustic and outrageous and stuff. Um, but then I would find myself sort of like having spiritual moments, you know, and, and it was very confusing to me because I, it took me um, a while, I'll say, to unwrap and unravel and untangle my Catholic upbringing from my spirituality. And so um, luckily, uh, after some years, and and it was kind of my Saturn returns period where, you know, I was in my later 20s and I sort of was like, oh, you know what? I miss being spiritual. I want a spiritual practice and I want to be spiritual, but um, I've got to separate this idea of religion and my Catholic upbringing with spirituality. And I'll tell you, that was not... Like that took me a while and, and you know, uh, I won't, you know, I, I, I became part of a fellowship of people who were able to um, create a God of their own understanding. Um, mm-hmm. And this fellowship's, you know, not religious. Um, and so that's where I found I could be, I could, you know, express my spiritual side more comfortably. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've, that's a lot of the reason why I want to do this work is I I feel like, you know, a spirit is a part of all of us. And mm-hmm. I think that there's care that can be taken with that. And I feel like for so many of us, we've been told we don't have one. It's like we're, we're, we don't have access to some sort of higher power concept or God. And, and that's just not tr- true. I mean, we can experience life. For me, it hasn't like there was a time when I was experiencing that it wasn't the truth, but it was, you know, I didn't see that I could, I don't know, have spirituality anymore. And it was so damaging. Um, I agree. So- I mean, yeah, I agree. And I, and in many ways I, I sort of participated in that sort of, I mean, it was almost like I'm a fucking punk queer, you know, and somehow in my mind, and it's again, it goes back to the the bullshit of the way I was raised it sadly meant that I had to throw out spirituality. And what I realized is, no, I had to throw out the religion. (laughs) I had to throw out the doctrine, but I could hang on to the spirituality. And that takes time to figure that out when you've been, you know, abused by a a church that, you know, is, is, is gotten in your head. Yeah, definitely. And that's, I feel like identities for me have over time, like identities can be really limiting, especially if, if, you know, like if it decides everything for you, like you say you identify as a gay man or you identify as a Christian or you identify this way, it almost kind of makes all your choices for you. It can. Right. Um, of course. I, I think as I've gotten older, I can I can define what a trans person who is spiritual, who does drag, who like whatever is like I get to be all of that at once. And like right. identities can almost be a little limiting. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, you know, and especially, I mean, it kind of was the the beauty of that community when I first fell into it in San Francisco was like, in many ways, we didn't have the language that we do now. And in some ways, I feel like there was an easier acceptance, you know, um, there was this sort of like shared experience that so many of us had had. And I think it was also that like, no matter why we were being bullied or getting beaten up in the streets, you know, um, it was coming from the same place. And I mean, I'm really, really glad for progress. And, you know, the fact that 
um, gay people can be married now and that, you know, um, trans folks, when we were talking before the show, you know, I have a, a trans friend who's a little, you know, a uh, little kid, you know, he's 11 years old and he's been able to identify as trans since he could speak. These, this is amazing. This is incredible. Um, on the other hand, uh, I did, I do think I benefited a little bit from be, getting to be part of a community of a smaller community where just the audacity of coming out of the closet or dressing in drag or identifying as trans in any shape, way, or form. And that could just be through, you know, gender expression, um, where we were, you know, there was a time where we all had to stick together. <laughs> you know, like all of us were, you know, kind of in the same boat and uh, we, we sort of all, you know, lived under the same roof. And um, I kind of, you know, I sometimes miss those days, but, you know, I, I just sound like an old person. <laughs> well, right. Yeah. I mean, there's like that sense of urgency. There's like that, that feeling that we need one another, that we're connected to one another that can kind of go away when we feel, I don't know when those things go away. I mean, there was a time um, in the eighties where being openly queer, like it was just cool. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not necessarily, I mean, cool anymore. I mean, you know, you could be, you could be as, as square as anything and, you know, still be gay. I mean, God, we have conservative gays now. It's so tired. I mean, we have, you know, conservative trans people, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, we've got Caitlyn Jenner to deal with, you know? So it's like that thing where, um, you know, we're, we're now so far along that we have to deal with the assholes in our own community, you know, <laughs> which right. is good. It's ultimately good, but it, you know, there was a time where, you know, there were, it, it felt like we were, you know, this little, more renegade, I guess, punk group of, of gender outlaws and outcasts. Yeah, for sure. Um, we have a question from the audience. Uh, what advice would you give to people who are thinking about drag and words of wisdom to those who are already doing drag? Well, I mean, obviously, like a lot has changed since I first started doing drag. You know, now there's a very uh, successful and popular um television franchise, you know, all over the world, um, where that, that, I mean, whether we, whether we like it or not, it has had a tremendous impact on drag, um, uh, around the world. And, um, so I would say one thing is, it, which is sad to me, but, you know, kind of maybe need to decide, like, how important is it to you that you go that route? Because it's a very specific thing, you know, getting on that TV show and becoming famous, um, through Drag Race, my, my suggestion to you would be that that not be your goal, that that be that that be your that 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 may or may not happen. And that's fine. And to find the thing about drag that you love and the thing that you're good at and pursue it, you know, and make it work for you. And then if someday, you know, because let's face it, you know, they're going to they're going to run out of, um, you know, types of queens. You're this original you know, crazy, weird, wild thing of your own making and you get on that TV show, great. But if you don't, who cares, you know, and you're better off, you know, just doing it your way and kind of building, um, building a, you know, a, we didn't even call it a career back then. We called it building a character, building a, you know, uh, I don't know, it wasn't, but it wasn't a career. So I would also suggest maybe not even doing it at first because you think you're going to, you know, have a career in it. Do it as a hobby and as a passion because you love it. And if you don't love it enough to not to do it and not make money off of it, I don't think it's worth it. Yeah, I I feel the same way. Um, I uh, so what is your what would you say your favorite thing is about like drag? What's your I mean, you do so many 
different, like you, you do shows, you, I mean, you, you do haunted houses, you do all these sorts of things. Do you have a favorite thing? Um, as far as the medium goes, I would say that I don't, I mean, like I loved making all about evil, which is the feature film I made. I loved making the short films. I loved doing the stage shows and performing on stage. I loved performing, you know, at the stud and I love doing the haunted attraction. And so for me, a lot of it's all, it kind of com it comes from the same place and I give it sort of the same energy. And I guess what I love about all those things is I love that drag has allowed me to express this part of myself that's like there, that's deep down inside, that I think the more introverted, um, you know, part of me uh, wouldn't have allowed um, come out if I didn't sort of have this channel of fabulosity of, of, you know, confidence that Peaches ended up giving me. So I think for me, drag was a real way for me to reclaim and to celebrate and kind of manifest this, this creature that was, you know, hiding deep inside me. Um, uh, you know, and I, I worry that like, if I hadn't found Peaches or drag, I don't know that I wouldn't have like, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm often quite introverted, believe it or not, outside of, you know, being peaches. So, yeah, my favorite part of drag is just sort of what what it's unlocked for me, you know. Mm -hmm. How how has Shelter in Place been for you and your drag? I think like everybody else, uh, it's been hard. It's been challenging. I hate I hate kind of talking about it being hard because it's like, yeah, everyone, you know, it sucks for everyone. Um, I definitely feel like I'm super sick of it now, like, you know, really hitting a wall with it. I want to be out doing stuff and like seeing people and creating things. I mean, I was saying I, uh, to you as well that I went and did um, the Meals on Heels uh, dinner for Oasis, where I delivered food to people and, you know, it was socially distanced, of course, and I could per perform a little number. And, you know, what I didn't expect was how much I was going to love it. I loved it. And what I loved about it was that people were excited to see me, like to see Peaches in person and like their excitement and their love for me showing up at their house or whatever. It totally filled me with love, as cheesy as it sounds. And it was a really amazing experience. And, you know, these Zoom um, experiences and, and the internet are wonderful, amazing, but it doesn't replace energy. You know, it doesn't replace that in-person experience. So, I think for the most part, that's what I miss the most is sort of, you know, being with people in person, being with audiences in person. And it's been the hardest part because that's, you know, that's what I was doing. I mean, to pay the bills. So not only did sort of my livelihood stop, but then also, you know, the thing that I enjoy most, I'm lucky. I, I enjoy working. Right. I think a lot of people have realized they made maybe took for granted like touch and like, connectedness uh and being in a moment where we have to be separate so weird how we're like so separate but I've also never felt so connected like to so many right. people because we're like going through the same experience kind of like globally like it's so <laughs> yeah. wild to realize like what we're dealing with here you know I have friends in other countries around the world who are experiencing all the same anxiety and the same shit mm -hmm. it is wild I mean for better right. or worse. I, I do think that I do believe, and I really believe this, that we're going to get to the other side of this and it's going to be better. 
and that all the protesting and all of the, the everything that's happened, you know, with this perfect storm of COVID and shelter in place and George Floyd and, you know, uh, everything, all of it, um, that, that, that there's a no turning back point and we've reached it and the chickens have come home to roost. And so the other side of this, I just know is going to be better, but we just have to kind of like keep up with the work and like stick with it and, you know, definitely, you know, change things come, you know, November with the election. Um, but I think that we're going to be in this storm for a few years, unfortunately. But I do believe that the other side of it is going to be a much more beautiful world. Yeah, really great change and growth starts with a little bit of discomfort often. <laughs> yeah, or a lot. <laughs> right. Um, this question is from Reverend Marvin White. And he, he said, you mentioned divine. Who are your other drag saints and drag sisters, those drag queens who have gone before? Okay. Uh, well, divine for sure, obviously. Elvira, um, who I adore. I, I grew up, you know, worshiping um, Elvira. Uh, I also, you know, from a young age, being being just such a queen, um, was lucky enough to be introduced to Hollywood movies. So I grew up, you know, really even in college, like worshiping Joan Crawford and Rita Hayworth and Betty Davis and, you know, Judy Garland and like all of the classics. Um, and as far as drag specific icons, I mean, the Coquettes, you know, Hibiscus, uh, certainly San Francisco's very own Doris Fish and Miss X. Like I discovered the movie Vegas in Space, which was shot here in San Francisco and all those wild queens, you know, that came before me, um, you know, Tippy and all, all of the, the queens in Vegas in Space, like, they're re they've really been humongous um, influences and inspiration for me. Fantastic. Um, another question um, from Jeff O. He's, he's curious about this satanic temple and how, it, how it's understood or misunderstood. I know we haven't quite gone there yet, but. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, there's actually this great documentary that I think, you know, really does it justice. Uh, it's called Hail Satan, question mark. Hail Satan, you know, I guess is the way you would say the title of the film. And I think the film is is actually brilliant. And I think for me, what I love about being a member of the um, uh, the Satanic Temple is that, um, you know, Satanism has always been something that I've uh, been drawn to as a taboo, you know, because it was so, so in the 80s was such a, you know, a terrifying thing and used to terrify people and actually used to do really horrible things like throw innocent teenagers in jail, you know, just because they listen to Metallica or whatever. Um, so it was used to such awful thing, you know, such an awful thing. But the discovery of like Anton LaVey for me, um, and sort of, you know, the, the history of Satanism in San Francisco specifically was always really exciting. But it wasn't until the Satanic Temple came along specifically that I really thought, oh, I could become part of this group because it's really performative um, religion. And what they do, and I think, well, what we do is we, we sort of challenge the separation of church and state through being a religion. So, you know, we, um, as the Satanic Temple, uh, really work hard to uh, maintain choice across the country um, and make sure that all of these abortion challenges are challenged right back. Uh, the Satanic Temple does a lot as far as um, taking things to court and winning lawsuits. Like anytime 
some asshole wants to put the fucking, you know, Ten Commandments on public property, you know, the satanic temples there to say, well, then we'll put up our um, statue of Baphomet. (laughs) So it's more of a political performative thing, I think, than a religion. Um, But if you look up the tenets, because it is a religion, if you look up the tenets of the satanic temple, I think you'll find that most of us probably want to live that life. Right. Yeah. What would you say is one of the biggest misconceptions? Oh, I think, you know, that we're uh, evil or that we celebrate wickedness or darkness or cruelty or, you know, it's actually kind of, I think, the opposite, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. I think if you look at, uh, you know, evangelical Christians and radical Christianity, I mean, keep in mind, I, I obviously have a lot of Christian relatives and Christian family members. And, you know, so I know that not all Christians are bad people, right. you know, and just because I left the Catholic church or I resent it doesn't mean that I think that the members are necessarily a problem, you know? Um, but, but when you look at sort of the extremes of any religion, really um, it can get, you know, just so terrifying. Right. Um, and uh, so I think with the satanic, uh, temple, um, it's really about perform. It's 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 basically holding a mirror up to those things, yeah. um, you know. I I got I I'm not as familiar. I guess part what comes up for me is uh I really love stories about villains and like they're kind of like how they became villains, so to speak, or that idea of like evil and good. Like I love like the show Lucifer, you know, where it's like. Uh-huh the devil dealing with being human or whatever. Like I love those sorts of things. Cause I feel like we all, like we all have the ability to be monsters or to be like whatever. And I think what's interesting about it from a queer point of view and why you see so many queer people drawn to it is because it's where we saw ourselves, you know, growing up, we've often, I mean, look at Disney villains, look at the gayest representations in Disney films. They're usually, you know, um, uh, villains, right? You know, Scar, very gay acting. Ursula, you know, based on divine. Like, you know, queerness, you know, Anthony Perkins in, you know, uh, Psycho, you know, Buffalo Bill in The Silence of the Lambs. So in a twisted way, those were people I identified with. I actually identified with the monster, you know? So, I mean, I think growing up, there was part of me that felt more comfortable saying I was a Satanist than a Christian, you know, but, but really do I worship the devil? No, I don't believe in the devil, <laughs> you know, and I don't think the satanic temple, mo- most of the members actually, there's no real belief in the devil or Satan, you know, it's, it's a belief in, um, you know, the universe and, you know, standing up for people, standing up for the underdog. Right. Another question. Do you feel that San Francisco still has a more, punk edgy aesthetic and how do you think the drag scenes are in the cities today any notable differences in engagement from benjamin joseph you know i um, one of the things that's been like so great about uh getting to work as peaches is that i've been able to travel all over and experience drag scenes you know in different cities all over the uh country and and then even you know in different parts of the world you know especially the uk um where i've done a lot of uh shows and things and i'll say that i think san francisco is still quite edgy and does some and to some degree still kind of lead the way with um breaking down walls and breaking down barriers 
And to, I'm really proud of the young people in this city um, that are that are currently performing and creating scenes. And, you know, um, I got to perform at Oak Lash uh, last mm -hmm. year and just, you know, watching the show, I was like, oh yeah, this is still like, I, this, the, the, I saw stuff in that show that I've never seen before. And I feel like I've really seen it all, you know? Um, right. So I do think that, but I'll also say that San Francisco and the influence of San Francisco has reached um, a lot of communities. And, you know, I, I see things um, in like the Manchester drag scene in England, you know, with Cheddar Gorgeous and Anaphylactic and all those people where, mm -hmm. you know, I think there, there's been a lot of inspiration from, you know, uh, what we've done here. And certainly the Boulay brothers have said, you know, that monster drag, you know, was sort of, you know, born in San Francisco and they've done a lot to give uh, myself and Hecklina, Squeaky Blonde, Ben Santos, a lot of credit for doing this stuff, you know, 25 years ago, you know, but now drag, the Belay Brothers have kind of brought this sort of style of drag to a bigger platform. Um, yeah, so I, I still think San Francisco is on the cutting edge, but I also think what's happened is, is its influence has reached a lot of, uh, a lot of the world. Yeah. So I, I, we're running on a little bit of a time. So I thought maybe we'd do some rapid fire questions because sure. there are a few that are waiting. Um, one is um, uh, Larry Swabe, Swabe, Swab, I don't know. Uh -huh. um, uh, he says, um, uh, loved all about evil. Uh, how do we watch it now? Good question. So we um, actually self-distributed for a long time uh, and actually did very well with that. Uh, and we basically had a contract with NBC Universal for North America. I mean, it's actually available. It's more easy to see it in other parts of the world than it is in North America. However, that contract has uh, expired. And so uh, we are now negotiating for it to be on one of the big streaming platforms. And hopefully that'll happen later this year. But I really am upset because COVID ugh, uh, <laughs> it's kind of prevented this big 10 year anniversary screening from happening that we were gonna do in person, you know, here in San Francisco with the cast and right. at the Victoria Theater and, you know, really, really celebrate it. But obviously that's not gonna happen this year. Um, right. But look for it uh, soon coming to a streaming uh, network near you. Fantastic. Uh, what is your take on the drive-in movie theaters making a comeback during these tricky times we're living in? Exactly. Uh, well, I love it. I mean, I think it's so cool and I think it makes sense. You know, um, my hope is that I, I'm, I'm kind of pushing for creating more of those experiences in the city, more outdoor experiences where maybe you don't have to have a car, but maybe we could have an outdoor cinema or maybe we could have an outdoor theater or outdoor cabaret space. Um, so that's kind of something I've been um, actually working on with um, a company here in San Francisco. So who knows, um, you know, because right now, I mean, one of the one of the really tough parts right now is it's very hard to sort of pitch these sorts of projects when, you know, our own city is going in the wrong direction. So, you know, who, you know, if we could move in the, the right direction as far as, you know, um, our phase goes, we might be able to, I have to adjust this thing all the time. Uh, we might be able to, <laughs> we might be able to, um, get there, but right now, God, I guess we just, you know, we just got to be careful, but I think, unfortunately, we're going to be in this mess for a while. Mm -hmm. I hope I'm wrong, you know? Right. 
we'll we'll figure out we'll figure out a way to make it fabulous. We have to. I mean, if it means doing theater outside, we'll, we've got to do theater outdoors. We'll do it. Um, oh, question: Are you still in contact with Mink Stoll? Phyllis Levine says we were friends. <laughs> yes, Mink and I just did a, a big show on the internet. Where were you, Phyllis? Uh, we were. Um, we did a show. Um, two weeks ago. So Mink and I are uh, very close, uh, which is, is surreal for me because I grew up, you know, worshiping her. And um, But she and uh, John have really taken me in and, and uh, we've become friends and, you know, I'm so grateful. And Mink is doing really well. She's, she's actually sheltering in place in Los Angeles with her boyfriend. When this all started, Mink and I were supposed to fly to London together uh, the following week in March. We were supposed to do a show in London in March, um, but Mink smartly, instead of going to London, uh, she got on a plane and went to LA so she could, you know, be with her boyfriend. Otherwise she would have been stuck in Baltimore alone. So she's that. doing well. Do you, any cities in the South have a solid drag scene? Asked Laura GK. Oh yeah. I mean, so many of the Southern cities have, you know, vital and huge, incredible drag scenes. Um, of course, as far as like alternative sort of drag where I've really, uh, found, you know, community, I guess you'd say. Um, Austin, Texas has an incredible scene. Um, Louisiana Purchase and the Poo Poo Platter girls there are incredible. Uh, New Orleans is fantastic. Um, Vince Santos and the drag workshop down there, you know, uh, just in tons of fantastic queens. So yeah, all over the South, great queens. Atlanta, of course. Right, right. Would you consider performing in Columbus, Ohio? Yeah, I would perform. Yeah, I would Eric, perform Eric, anywhere. Right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Eric Ferdram the second was asking. So maybe, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people think that I decide on where I'm going to go or not go, um, where a lot of it actually depends on producers. You know, right. so I have a production company here in San Francisco where we build the shows and create the shows or make the movies. But then when I'm on the road or go other places, it's because a producer in that city has reached out to work with me. So mm -hmm. if um, there's someone in Columbus who wants to either bring me or bring one of my shows, um, you know, and, and our shows are not easy to bring. I mean, it's not, you know, it, it, it's a challenge, which is why they don't travel maybe to as many places as people uh, would like. But yeah, just ha reach out to me. All right. And we'll go ahead and do one last uh, question. Um, it's an end statement. I first discovered Peaches through the Midnight Mass era. Will you ever be doing the Mass series again? James Bradford asks. Well, I mean, that's actually one of the things I'm kind of, you know, hopeful for with this whole um, situation we're in. I kind of think maybe I could do something like a Midnight Mass series outside. So that's actually what I've been looking into is, is could I build... Um, you know, a cinema somewhere. We're looking at a, a, a actually a roof on a big building. So, you know, oh. I will keep you posted. But the idea would be to do a new version of Midnight Mass, not at midnight. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's too late for some of us, huh? It really is. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, I guess I think this is uh, one more. Let's say, for example, if Stanley Kubrick were around right now, would you ever have him for the Midnight Mass? if you were here to bring it, if you were to bring it back? Oh my God, I would be so scared to have Stanley Kubrick. I'm actually, you know, it's funny. I, I feel like with a lot of the directors that are auteurs like Stanley Kubrick, 
Um, as much as I would love to do a show with Stanley Kubrick, and, and you know, I mean, he is a genius. I would actually rather do a show where we screen like The Shining and elevate Shelley Duvall and put her mm-hmm. up on a, you know, I tend to do really well with, with celebrating women and sort of, um, I feel like a lot of these movies, you know, um, the men get all of the credit, but I think Shelley Duvall, you know, deserves so much uh, credit for that film. And I, I'd actually almost rather do a show with her if I was going to do it, you know, if I was going to do a Stanley Kubrick movie, it would have to be The Shining. Right. And so um, if you're okay with the political question, who do you think should be the running mate with Biden? Oh my God. I mean, like, it's sort of like, uh, who do I think should be the running mate for <laughs> political reasons or who, I mean, I would love, I mean, personally, I would love it if you, you know, would just ask like Auntie Maxine, you know, to get on the ticket, you know, um, I feel like that for me, that's something that I would get really excited about. You know, I, I and it's not just identity politics, you know, at the end of the day, but I mean, let's face it, it's women of color right now that I actually think, you know, despite identity politics, it's women of color that I think uh, we need more than ever in positions of authority. And if you look at the statistics of the countries that have dealt the best with this global pandemic, uh, the top seven countries in the world that are doing the best are led by women, you know? So I just, it's like, I, you know, I just want women to take over. Uh, I mean, so, okay. That is identity politics in many ways. Right? So, but my point is, my point is, um, yeah. I mean, I would, I would love a strong um, woman of color who has a great track record, you know, um, to be his running mate. And I think it would be this, the smartest thing for exciting uh, a lot of us progressives who are feeling a little underwhelmed by our options. Right. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Peaches. I want to well, thank you for being on the show tonight. Uh, I've had a really great time getting to know you a little bit more. Thank you, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. For sure. And I'm just going to say goodbye to the audience as well. Thank you for tuning in with us tonight. Take care and have a good night. Bye-bye.